Remember, we can bank our entire lives on this right here. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new and he said also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true would you pray with me Lord we thank you for your word it is a gift if you didn't reveal yourself to us through creation and through your word, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know you. But you have. You've created us to know you. And we're learning what that means. So we ask that as we think about this gift, uh, your word, this gift of revelation, that by your spirit we would get into that gift and see it as it is. That we might understand reality, we might understand who we are, we might understand who you are, 
and we might have hope. So act on us, change us, challenge us, rebuke us, correct us, lead us, Lord, in the path of life. Equip us to live in this world, your world. Again, we pray this for your glory. Amen. So here's where we're going this morning. Here's the roadmap. I want to summarize the book this morning. We're going to do that by looking at chapter chunks. I'm going to try to do that in about 10 minutes. If I can do it sooner than that, great. But we're going to try to summarize the whole book looking at chapter chunks. And then we're going to answer the question, so what? And I've got three things for you this morning, and so what? Before I do that, I want to start with this question, and I would love for you to respond verbally. Two weeks in a row, I know, look out. If you don't answer, it's totally fine. It's okay, all right? I'm not going to take your answer and then do some weird bait and switch or yank the carpet out from me. I'm not going to do that. But I want to ask a question, and I'd love for you to respond if you want to. I'll ask several questions so you can pick which one you want to answer if you decide to answer. So the first one is this. Who is God? Who do, you, who do you think God is? The next one, yes, Jesus is God. We'll take that. End of service. We're done. <laughs> um, what do you think is God's disposition towards you today? How does he look at you? What do you think he's thinking about you? All right, that's about four or five. Anybody? Who's God? What's his disposition towards you today? Anybody want to answer? All right, we got three answers in one. I love it. Let's start. Lee, what? Okay. You believe that God's smile is upon you. That's awesome. That's great. Make it so. That is true. Mr. Ben, did you have something or... Yeah, God is a welcoming God. He welcomes us with open arms. Who else? There's somebody else over there. Okay. Yes, God looks at us and sees what Jesus has done. All right, we had a little one over here, I think. Mallory, you're going to have to repeat this because I can't see with that. Okay. God looks upon us. That's right. He's not ignoring us. He's looking at us, isn't he? That's great. Sometimes we can think he's like got his back turned away over here. He sees us. What else? Hmm. Unconditional forgiveness. That's good. How about that? He looks at us the way a husband will look at his bride who's coming down the aisle. Anything else? Christina, I noticed you don't have the mask this morning, so now I can, I'm going to get this. Yeah. Okay. That God is guiding us, like the psalm says, with like a rod and a staff. He's, he's leading us, guiding us. Anything else? Anybody had a horrible morning or a horrible week, and you're here this morning, and you just think, you know, God's really displeased with me. I know it's kind of hard to say that, isn't it? Angelica. What's that? He's a father. Yes, that's true. 
Sorry, I'm slow to hear sometimes. What I want you to see in the book of Revelation about God is this. I want you to believe that God's smile is upon you because of Jesus. And he looks at you as the husband looks at his bride coming down the aisle, as a father, as a shepherd, that he loves you, that he unconditionally forgives you all because of Christ. Yes, 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 yes. But here's what I want you to know about who God is from the book of Revelation. He is an imaginative genius. When you read the book of Revelation after this, I want your, one of your big takeaways to be that God is an imaginative genius. And I want you to be thinking about that as we try to summarize this book quickly in chapter chunks and as we get to the so what. Because I don't want you to think when you read the book of Revelation that, that God is this anxiety-creating person who hides things from you that you can only figure out through a code and that your great hope is to get out of this place and that things are going to get bad, worse and worse and worse and worse and worse because you're not exactly sure if he's really in control or not. No. I want you to know that God is an imaginative genius. So let's go through these chapter chunks and summarize the book quickly. Chapters 2 and 3 tell us that Jesus writes seven letters to the churches. It's meant to be comprehensive, meaning that Jesus is describing the struggles that churches have had and always will have. And Jesus writes you a letter. Take that in. A letter. Jesus writes a letter to his churches. It's amazing. Chapters 4 and 5 give us the throne room scene. Meaning that this throne room scene, this throne is the one reference point for the entire universe. It means that there are things that are unseen that we plug our lives into. Does that make sense? The throne is real. And we have to take the circumstances in our lives and run that through the throne. We have to take the emotions that we feel and run that through the throne. We have to take our plans and our perceptions and run that through the throne. It means that we have to take all that we are to the throne. That the throne is not only the one reference point for all reality, it is the one reference point for our lives and everything that we're thinking and feeling and hoping, everything. Then we get into the cycles of seven. So we have these cycles of seven. We have the seals, not the animals. Then we have the trumpets, and then we have the bowls. So here are the chapters that correspond with those. So we have the seven seals from chapter six to verse five of chapter eight. Then we have the trumpets from chapter eight, verse six, through chapter 11. Then we have the seven bowls in chapter 16. Now, the reason we're talking about these seven cycles of seven first, and I'm skipping some chapters, is for this reason. They're all saying the same things, just from a different vantage point. The seals and the trumpets and the bowls are all telling us a glimpse, all showing us a glimpse of history from different vantage points. And each time we get a little bit closer to the new heavens and new earth. 
We don't quite get there till 21 and 22, but we're getting closer and closer. So the seals are describing for us what life is like living in a fallen world, and everything ends at the throne. And you remember the first five verses of chapter 8? When we get to the throne there, there's silence, because God hears our prayers. Living in the fallen world is not easy, but God is always attentive to his people and their prayer. The trumpets are telling us that the world is incredibly unstable. It always has been and always will be. Calamities, plagues, famine always will occur. But it ends at the throne in which we understand that all the evil in the world and all that's going on will be judged. Get a little bit closer in new heavens and new earth. Prayer, judgment, and the final seven, the seven bowls, are telling us God's perspective on what's going on in the world and that he will judge, that he is in complete control, and he will put down evil forever. In other words, it ends at the throne. And what we have even there is celebration, a little bit further than prayer, a little bit further than judgment. Now we're past the judgment, there's just celebration. This is why in chapter 16 and verse 17 you find these words, from the throne, it is done. Same thing that Jesus said on the cross. Because his words and his statements have been echoing throughout all of history and define everything because he's accomplished something. So what about these chapters that I've skipped? Well, it was just easier to summarize it this way. Chapters 12 through 15 and 17 through 20 are all about the counterfeit. There's a counterfeit trinity out there. There's a counterfeit message. There's a counterfeit bride. We read who was and is and is to come. There's a little phrase that's tagged on to the counterfeit, who was and who will not be. It's just a little shorter. 12 through 15, we find out that Satan is working really hard with a couple friends, and he is behind all of the evil that's going on in the world. He was there at the birth of Christ, remember this? And he couldn't take out the the child, couldn't take out the Christ, so he goes after his people. 12 through 15. 17 through 20, the counterfeit is exposed and judged and put down forever. And then you know what happens? Take a guess. Celebration and joy. Because evil's gone. It's real. Evil is real. And it will make progress in the world. But it can't move beyond the throne. God's still in control. 21 and 22, what do we find there? The new heavens and the new earth. Heaven comes down. We see the new Jerusalem. We see that God will be with us. The promise of all of Scripture in every section of the Bible. We will be his people and he will be our God and he will dwell with us forever. The new heavens and the new earth. He'll make all things new Not starting over, taking what is old, what is here, and purifying and refining and transforming. 
to make it what it should be. You might wonder, well, Dave, you skipped chapter 1. Thanks for asking. You're right. Chapter 1 and chapter 22, verse 6 to the end, meaning chapter 22, 6 through 21, are like bookends. When you read them together, you can see how they parallel. What you find in there are descriptions of Christ, that he is the one who's doing all these things. He is the one that God's people are longing to see. John says in chapter 1, behold, he comes on the clouds. And in chapter 22, what we find that he is the light of the world, literally speaking. So his people are saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come on, round third, head home, bring home to us, <laughs> make all this real. And then you notice that it ends with a blessing. Chapter 1 starts with a blessing, chapter 22 ends with a blessing. Blessing is, blessed is the one who reads this and hears it and follows what it says. Chapter 22, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Remember? Blessing. God meant this book to be a blessing. So if you ever read the book of Revelation and you don't sense that you're being blessed, you've missed it. If you read the book of Revelation and it's created anxiety in you or fear in you or uncertainty or the fact that you don't want to read the book or the fact that you're afraid of the book, you've missed it. It's meant to be a blessing just if it's read to you. In addition, if you'd hear it, in addition, if you keep it, it's meant to be a blessing. Well, that's our quick summary of these chapter chunks that get what we've talked about for six months. I mentioned those to you in part because I think you can kind of get it and realize that it's not this intricate woven code that you got to have this, all this weird stuff to figure out what's saying. It's, it's laid out for you. So you can see that it's about God and Jesus. That's why the first phrase of the book, perhaps you're getting tired of me saying this, but if you come to me and ask me about my interpretation, I'll tell you, the first phrase of the first chapter of the first verse billboards what this is about. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter one, first one, first phrase. This is what this book is about, the revelation of Jesus and what he has done. All right, well, let's move on to the so what. All right, Dave, I get all that. I mean, not really. I won't remember what you said. Tuesday, can't believe you asked me to remember all these chapter chunks. I won't remember all that. I understand. But so what? What difference does it make? What difference does it make that this book is telling me what it says? What difference does it make? Well, I got three things for you. I want to talk about control and honesty and rest. This book is about control and honesty and rest. We'll start with control. God wins. God wins. That means when you read this book and when you read the Bible, it is not to be read as an instruction manual. It is a story. That means when you read this book or read Revelation, when you read the whole Bible, you should not approach the Bible and think, where can I find principles Take out those principles, put them into an algorithm, 
put that input into your life to get this desired output. That's not the book. That's not the Bible. The Bible is not a book of principles. It's not a manual. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. What kind of view does that have just in and of itself? This is a story. And as a story, you can see the progression from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Let me just highlight a few things for you that you can see, that you can see progress throughout the book, the whole book. God created man and woman in the garden. Their names were Adam and Eve, and they were his people. And by the end of Revelation, you have an innumerable number from every tongue and tribe and nation, and they are his people. There is dramatic progress from Genesis to Revelation that death can't even stop. Do you see that? There is progress in this book from a garden to a city. And that city still has elements of being a garden. Isn't this the way that we see things develop in the world and in cities throughout the world? We go from agriculture to technology. We go from gardening to a modified, bona fide city. That's the progression of all of history. God set us up in the garden to organize it. God set us in the garden to rule it, to manage it, to help things produce, to put things together, to, to create, to work together, to spread his glory so that more people would come into the world and they would use more of their gifts and more things would be developed so that at the end there would be this huge city of God. That's the story of the Bible. Progression. The last progression is this, and this is the one that I hope will really hit your heart. There's a progression from threat to unhindered flourishing. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, guess what? There was a threat, wasn't there? There was a serpent. There was someone who wanted to bring about evil, who wanted to put a question mark on whether or not God meant what he said. By Revelation 21 and 22, there's no more threat. Matter of fact, when Jesus returns in the new heavens and new earth, and we live on the new heavens and new earth, we won't be able to sin. Take that in. It's not just that we'll become a lot better at resisting temptation. It's that the threat of evil and darkness and sin itself and death itself will be gone forever and we won't be able to sin. You looking forward to that? That's progress, isn't it? So you see, the goal of reading the book is not that we derive principles and turn it into a formula, pull it, pull it, turn it into an algorithm, put it in an input so we get this output. The point of the Bible, and when we study it together, the point of you coming to worship is not that you come here and you get a God thought for a few minutes. It is that you live into the four-part story. It's that you live into what God says about reality. It's that we live into the reality of creation and rebellion and redemption and restoration. And when we get together, we live into that story. 
Because when we live into that story, you know what happens? We start being more and more convinced and our hearts begin to be more and more attached to what is invincible. There's only one thing in the universe that's invincible. That's the gospel. That's God. That's it. Everything else, unstable, comes and goes. Everything else, falls short. But the only way for the gospel to be invincible in our lives is for us to live into the four-part story and recognize that we were made in his image, that we rebelled against him, that Jesus is a literal savior, and that all things are going to be made new. That means that you run your job through the four-part story. You run your relationship through the four-part story. You run controversial things through the four-part story. Not just two, four. It means you look at yourself, not just as a two-part story person, but a four. So let's back up. If there's only one thing that's invincible, let's review this because I really want you to take this away. Has there been any plague that has wiped out Christianity from the face of the earth? Nope. Has there ever been a catastrophe calamity that has wiped out every follower of Jesus on the face of the earth? Has there ever been any economic collapse that has wiped out the followers of Jesus? No. Has there ever been any government that has wiped out every follower of Jesus? Has there ever been any army that has overtaken the followers of Jesus and removed them from the earth? Has there ever been has Satan, in your knowledge, has Satan ever been able to wipe out all the followers of Christ? Has death been able to stop the resurrection? No. No, no, no. The only thing that's invincible is the gospel and the kingdom of God. Everything else is unstable. Everything else will come and go. And they will never be able to wipe out the church. Has any false teaching wiped out the church? So keep it in perspective. Right? Here's the perspective. God's in control. God wins. I'm not in control. And neither are you. This book is about control. And God is in control, period. End of story. Evil can never overtake, never overtake the throne, ever. Oh, there can be lots of machinations and progress here and progress there. Will never overtake God, ever. So, beloved, why don't we live like it? Just, just think about that, which leads us to this. Honesty. This book forces us to be honest. And that's not something we like to do. That's not something we like to be. Oh, just bear with me here. Because you might be thinking, oh, I'm a very honest person. Okay, I, I believe you. I'm, I'm trying to go a little bit deeper here. Are you willing to face yourself? Are you willing to face yourself? Do you remember the original audience? 
They had seen the church explode. They had seen the churches planted in different places. They had seen the church go beyond regional barriers. They had seen people come to faith who weren't just of Jewish descent. They were also Gentiles, meaning everybody else, people like us. They had seen the church explode and develop. They'd also experienced persecution. They knew that Peter was crucified upside down. They knew that other followers of Christ were beheaded. They knew that their friends and loved ones believed at a cost of their life. And it's when we go through those trials that we have to face ourselves and start thinking about what is it that I really believe and what difference does it really make And is this whole thing about Jesus just fire insurance that gets me, you know, to a better place for eternity? Just because I don't want to be in a place where it gets really hot forever and ever? Is there anything to this message, this message of Jesus that's more than just fire insurance? Yes. And oftentimes we won't get there until the trials come and the challenges come that we can't even imagine. Because it'll make us think about what do we really think of Jesus and what did he really say and what did he really do and what does he really promise? Because we're so prone to just say, I want to take this principle of Jesus, put it in my life, and then I'm going to get this outcome. Well, let me tell you, life is going to shock you. And there'll be plenty of times in your life that you will just fall flat on your face because you will have no idea what to do or what this kind of thing even means. Are you willing to face yourself? Are you really willing to think about who you really are, what you really think, and even what you really feel about something? And run that through the throne and think about the gospel and think about Jesus and his death and resurrection and his perfection for you and who he is for you and what he promises to you and being with him forever. Are you really willing to face yourself? Let's go deeper. Don't forget the counterfeit has a counterfeit message. You remember Satan's game? Satan's game is to try to control the government so that the government might target followers of Jesus and persecute them. Or what he wants to do is to get God's people to think that they should be preoccupied with government and that government can be the solution If we just change government, then our lives are going to be so much better. If we just do this or do that with the government, then everything will be so much better for us. So Satan's game is to get us to mix the gospel with government. Satan's game is for us to be attached to the church and attached to Jesus. We just need a plus sign plus my view of government. Beloved, that's the counterfeit message. And hear me, sidebar, number one, God is not anti-government. He's above it. He turns the heart, the king of the, the, the heart of the king, whether, wherever he wants. He's above it. He's not against government. It's just not something that he wants his people to be preoccupied with all the time. Number two, have your political opinions. Please, believe them. Try to live them out. No problem. Be committed. Be involved. 
as a follower of Jesus, be involved in government. Wonderful. Here's the rub. Your view of government had better pale in comparison to your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Hold your opinions. Never equate them with the gospel. Never equate them with the church. Don't start evaluating the spiritual health of a nation based upon the laws of the government. Consider the spiritual nature of our country based upon the church and its commitment to the Bible and the gospel. Don't fall into Satan's game. Don't buy into the counterfeit. It'll get us nowhere but distracted. It'll get us nowhere but losing sleep about something that doesn't ultimately matter because God is in control. The gospel is what is most important in the kingdom of God, period. And that means this. That means that we ought to put great emphasis on the church and great emphasis on the gospel. And we ought to fight against being distracted. You remember the mark of the beast? It's not physical. It's spiritual. When it says the mark of the beast is on our foreheads and on our hands, it's not physical. It's not your social security number. It's not a barcode. It's not a vaccine. It's not 5G. It's spiritual. When it says the mark of the beast is written on our heads and our hands, it's talking about on our heads the ideology of following the government. It's talking about the ideology of carrying out the the importance that we place on political influence. It's ideological. In the same way that when God says that he puts his mark on our foreheads, he's not literally saying that he's going to put his name on our foreheads. He's saying that our minds are thinking his thoughts. That his ideology is our ideology. You see, beloved? Don't buy into the counterfeit. And the harder part is that we have to recognize that all of us buy into the counterfeit. We all are tempted to follow and live out the mark of the beast. Because we always wanted Jesus plus something. We always wanted Jesus plus something else. Are you willing to be honest and face yourself? Third, rest. Rest. If you understand that God is in control because of what Jesus has done, and you're willing to face yourself, that will lead you to rest. It will lead you to rest. Do you remember when God created Adam and Eve? He created them on the sixth day. What was the first thing that they experienced? What happened on the seventh day? Rest. What is this promise that's given to us in Revelation? That we will be his people, he will be our God, and we will be with him forever and ever. There's no curse, there's no drama, there's no pain. There's no death. Beloved, there will be rest. God always finishes what he starts. And when that happens, when that happens, we will finally be at rest. And rest is not inaction. 
rest is that we will finally find fulfillment. We will finally find joy that cannot be taken away, and that joy will infuse every moment of our existence. It means that we will finally belong and we'll know it and we'll be a rest. It means that there will be a rhythm to our life of working and laboring and playing and recreating and worshiping forever and ever and ever. We were made to have a rhythm of life, of work and play and worship and rest. And that will be our lives for all eternity. And that means that the day is coming in which we actually will live for the life of the world. Now we do it with pain and hardship and setbacks and frustration, right? God made us to live for the life of the world to spread his glory everywhere, life, flourishing, peace, everywhere. But the day is coming in which everything that hinders us will be gone. And we really will live for the life of the world forever and ever and ever. And when that happens, all will be amen and hallelujah. We will rest, and we will see. Faith will be no more. Everything will be sight. We will see, and we will know. We will know, and we will love. We will love, and we will praise. Behold our end, which is no end.